morning, everyone. Uh, I'm Michael Carney with Upfront Ventures, and uh, there's been a lot of talk this morning and kind of broadly in this industry about the topics of cryptocurrencies and blockchains as they relate to price and speculation. But they're, they're truly going to be very impactful in the ways that software gets built going forward. So I want to spend some time with this great group of panelists here talking about how blockchain, panel, uh, sorry, excuse me, blockchain platforms get built, how they're different than the way software is traditionally built, what the implications are, what that means for the way uh, you know, early stage technology will be formed going forward. And I think we have a great group of people to do that. So I'm going to allow them each uh, a moment to introduce themselves, and then we'll jump in. Start. So my name is Nick Tomeno, and I run a small crypto uh, venture fund called One Confirmation. And previously, uh, I worked at Coinbase uh, as an early team member, working on business development and marketing uh, for a few years in the early days. Hi, guys. My name is Gary Tan. I'm managing partner of Initialized Capital. Uh, previous to that, I was a partner at Y Combinator for five years, where I got to work with uh, Brian Armstrong at Coinbase at, at really early, uh, first seed investor in that. I was also uh, earliest investor with Polychain Capital, and we've really loved crypto around it initialized. Uh, my name is Preeti Kassaretti, and I'm an engineer by trade, and I've kind of been in the crypto space from all sides. I was an investor at A16Z, and then I was an engineer at Coinbase, and then now I'm starting my own company in the blockchain space. So technology waves often get described in kind of two uh, phases. First is the infrastructure phase and then the application phase. I think it's fair to say we're still in the kind of early building block phase of what will be a kind of a blockchain ecosystem or economy. Um, is that fair? Is that, would you agree with that? And, and how would you analogize that maybe kind of in the timeline of the internet? Are we, are we like pre-browser here? Like how would you describe where we are today? So I would say that there's one clear application of blockchains in 2018, and that's investment slash speculation, right? So there's now over 500 billion in total market value of digital assets. Uh, there's companies like Coinbase that are now doing over a billion dollars in revenue annually. So I don't think, I think clearly there's one kind of mainstream application. And I'm guessing many people in this room at this time are now uh, investing or trading or speculating or, or things like that. Um, so I, I think that's uh, a, a kind of application that's here to stay, but I think it's fair to say beyond investment speculation, uh, we're still kind of in the early days of, of kind of building out the infrastructure and middleware that is needed to get to kind of end user applications beyond investment slash speculation. That's kind of how I think of it. Yeah, I mean, I think we're in 1994 basically, and you know, earlier we did the show of hands and that you know, hey, we're not using this stuff yet, but in 1994, hey, we need Mosaic to come out first, right? We need, you know, we were kind of using PPP accounts over our dial-up using modems, right? And so, you know, we are in this infrastructure phase, but it's also that the end users don't even really have access. Like, who here has MetaMask loaded in their browser right now? So like two or three of you. And so that's why, you know, that's the actual reason why no one raised their hands earlier, is that we don't have wallet browsers and people don't even know what that is yet. So we really are in 1994. And then the deeper issue here is, hey, we get to build a decentralized internet from scratch. In ideally, uh, you know, we're not at a place where it's better, cheaper, faster yet. But so was, you know, mail order e-commerce, you know, e-commerce didn't exist in 1994, right? All you could do is pick up the phone or do standard mail order. And so, you know, I think that the infrastructure and the user level facing things, they need to catch up. But that's why we're excited about it. 
Yeah, I think it's interesting how the space actually evolves. Because I remember in 2013 or 2014 when we made the investment in Coinbase at Andreessen Horowitz, we thought Coinbase would be building the infrastructure layer and the APIs, and then all these applications will be built on top of Coinbase. So Coinbase kind of built the APIs, but no one came and actually built the application. So it was kind of like, where is the apps problem? And then all of a sudden, with Ethereum, now you start to see a lot more applications being built. And then now we're like, oh, wait, we actually can't build these applications without solving the infrastructure problem. So we've kind of gone like there and then come back to infrastructure. And now, we're, now that there's like a lot of interest in, in the space and a lot of people are actually interested in building the apps, it's like, OK, let's actually focus on figuring out the infrastructure problems and then continuing in the app layer. So it's been an interesting evolution. <coughs> Uh, we hear the, the term decentralization thrown around a lot, and I'm not sure everyone truly understands what that means, but also what the implications are. So uh, I'd love to start by, by uh, maybe asking you, Nick, um, when, when you're building a software application, of, oftentimes it's, it's in the construct of a company, a company forms, there's a founder, there's capitalization, people own shares, and oftentimes they work in the same building, and they have a shared roadmap, and they, they kind of build this with a, with a vision from day one until they release a product into the world. How are things being built today in a decentralized concept uh, in the blockchain ecosystem? Yeah, I think decentralization probably gets overused and people use it without being specific about what it's referencing. But there are different kind of subsystems um, that uh, you, could, you could describe uh, with decentralization. So how I think about these subsystems or in, in kind of a blockchain chain, um, construction is uh, one of the subsystems is nodes. Um, and so the way kind of a decentralized network uh, works is uh, like Bitcoin, uh, there's many nodes kind of in the network that all are uh, maintaining a source of truth. Um, and, 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 you know, in a traditional kind of web construct, if you're using, you know, Bank of America, for example, you're trusting one database. Uh, so that's a centralized database. But when you're using Bitcoin, um, you're relying on kind of a distributed set of nodes. And there's like 15,000 nodes um, in the world, uh, around the world, that are now kind of running the Bitcoin ledger. So uh, decentralization of nodes is kind of one impor important piece of decentralization. You could also talk about decentralization of ownership, which is another really important piece, right? So, um, you know, all of these blockchains, uh, they're owned by users. Um, and that's a really interesting aspect. Rather than a system like Facebook, which uh, has a kind of centralized shareholder group and their users don't own the actual system, the way Bitcoin and Ether and other projects uh, work is um, th that the users actually own the product. And you also have to think about decentralization of, of kind of ownership there. Is it highly centralized? Is the creator, does the creator own 30% um, or things like that? So those are kind of two, I think, important uh, subsystems to, to think about when you think about decentralization. And there, there's a few others as well, but those are kind of the, the more important ones in my view. Yeah. I would add that an additional important layer there is decentralization of who determines what the truth is which is the miners. And so instead of trusting a single, single central party like a bank or a government, you're trusting a bunch of miners to maintain the truth of the system. So that's another way to, that's another factor of decentralization. And so one of the kind of important underlying concepts in, in the way these decentralized systems work is incentives, right? In incentives can be economic incentives. They can be access incentives. They can be kind of power influence. Uh, I mean, Bitcoin being kind of the canonical example in this space, uh, has the concept of mining and mining fees and mining rewards and so forth. Can you, uh, maybe Gary, can you explain kind of broadly how that concept works and, and what other versions have emerged since Bitcoin for creating incentives to, to induce behavior or participation in these networks? Right. 
Absolutely. Like just as in the earlier session, we talked about, hey, mining is actually just doing this very intensive math problem that consumes a lot of energy. There are these other forms of, uh, you know, proof of basically uh, of consensus, like proof of stake. And so proof of stake says rather than do this crazy expensive math problem, let's just say you put up, uh, you know, a thousand, you know, whatever tokens, right? And so we're saying, hey, you're going to run that program on a normal computer with, you know, the standard algorithm, st the standard thing that we've released, the developers have released. And if you try to cheat the system, you lose it. And so um, I think the analogy is, um, you know, basically, if the ASIC miner doesn't, you know, if, if the ASIC miner tries to attack the network, then, you know, you just, it, you just don't actually find the hash. It doesn't work. But, you know, if in the proof of stake situation, you're trying to attack the network, well, we come and burn down the ASIC miner. We, we burn down your house, basically. Um, and that's just a very different way to uh, arrive at consensus, but one that doesn't require the crazy amount of electricity and sort of, uh, you know, computation that's happening now with proof of work. And, and any of you, do you have strong feelings one way or another about whether proof of stake will be a viable or better alternative for forming this consensus than proof of work has been today? So uh, I think, uh, you know, a lot has been written recently about proof of work and the fact that um, it's... It takes the energy it, of a small country to yeah. mine yeah, there, Bitcoin. You're, you're basically taking resources external to the network and, and using it to do one thing, which is kind of validate transactions, and that's very inefficient. But Bitcoin um, trades computational um, scarcity for uh, social scalability. And there's, uh, if you could read one blog post uh, written by anyone about this space, uh, I encourage you to check out uh, Nick Szabo's blog, Unenumerated, and he talks about this concept of social scalability. And Bitcoin and proof of work has uh, social scalability in space, meaning uh, the, the way it was launched was very fair. So proof of work, um, anyone in the world can contribute resources to this network and earn, uh, you know, in exchange for those resources. And so while that's very, um, it's very energy inefficient and it's not scalable, it is very fair and as a result, um, people trust it. And you don't have to trust a group of people to use it, you just kind of trust the rules of the protocol. And um, as a result, in my view, uh, it's by far the most socially scalable and very likely will continue to be. Something like proof of stake I think is quite interesting um, as well. And uh, the, the basic idea is rather than taking resources external to the network to uh, kind of validate transactions and, and kind of verify the source of truth, you're using resources internal to the network to do that. And so the, the, the idea is that um, it could be much more energy efficient and, uh, and potentially scalable as well. And that's what Ethereum's doing. And I think um, it's an interesting experiment, but even Ethereum right now is, is using proof of work and there will be a stage where there's proof of work, it's hybrid, proof of work, proof of stake, and then ultimately the hope is that we get to proof of stake, but it, that's quite a long ways out. So that's... So you mentioned this transition and how if the Ethereum network will work and arrive at consensus. Uh, I think I want to talk a little bit about how these decisions get made, how, how a, a uh, platform or protocol decides to change the way it will do things, how the governance works, who makes those decisions, because there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of kind of make it up as you go along across this whole ecosystem. And there's not really a best practice for how these things work. And so one of the interesting things about this category is we're seeing a lot of kind of 
experimentation, a lot of kind of evolutionary, Darwin, Darwinian evolution where a bunch of things go out in the world, there's, there's feedback about whether it works or not, doesn't work, one alternative is better than the other, and kind of the, the best solutions we hope will emerge and, and kind of rise to the top. So how are, uh, how are Bitcoin and Ethereum different in how they arrive at consensus, but also how they arrive at, at decisions about evolving and changing the protocol? I mean, my sense is that Ethereum is uh, a little bit more like a, you know, it's a sort of actually run by people and they're making decisions, to, you know, basic technical decisions. It's a fairly small about, group of people. A very it's centralized group. And it's centralized. Body. Specifically, right. it's a benevolent dictatorship, right? Yeah. So Vitalik Buterin is the creator of Ethereum and he, uh, as a result, has the respect of everyone in the community and if he uh, pushes a change, um, the change is likely to get made. Um, but, but not certain. Likely, but not certain. Yes, yes. And uh, Bitcoin is very different because Satoshi, um, you know, no one knows who Satoshi is and he disappeared, right? So there's no benevolent dictator that everyone uh, in the community rallies around to make changes. And specifically, like, for a change to get made in Bitcoin, the developers need to push the code, then the miners in the, in the ecosystem need to uh, approve the change, and the users have to kind of support it by voting with their feet of using the coin. So there's kind of uh, checks and balances in the Bitcoin ecosystem. And Ethereum works similarly. Um, the, the difference though is that again, Vitalik is this benevolent dictator that um, if he pushes a change like a hard fork, um, then uh, the, we'll the, uh, the community gets behind it and the developers push the code, the, the uh, miners kind of uh, you know, validate that. So, in my view, you know, Ethereum has emerged very clearly as a platform uh, for development because of Vitalik and his ability to push things forward. Bitcoin has stagnated a bit um, in terms of being a platform for development, um, although it may be great as a store of value and as a socially scalable store of value because you could use it uh, very confidently knowing that um, it's going to be very hard for changes to be made in the future. I think another way to think about governance is off-chain and on-chain. Yeah. Um, so Bitcoin and Ethereum are both off-chain governance, meaning like there's people off the blockchain that are making these decisions. Human, human beings are making decisions. Yeah. yeah. And then on-chain decisions is this like ideological world where we can create a governance system encoded in code and it can run automatically based on um, how much coin holders hold and they, the coin holders determine the vote in the system. And as ideological and beautiful as that sounds, it's really hard to encode that in rules, in code, because decisions depend on incentives and interests. And writing those in code and making sure those actually stay forever the same is like almost impossible, I think. And so I think there will be a, some part of governance that will move more on-chain, but my, my, my thesis is that a lot of it will be off-chain. And it's just about figuring out how to better structure these. One of the related topics uh, to how these decisions get made is kind of the tension between holders and, and or developers on potentially one side, often the same side, and miners often on a separate side. And so you mentioned that uh, you know, when somebody pushes, a, developers push change to the code, the miners have to accept it. Uh, <coughs> does anyone have, you know, want to tackle explaining kind of how that works? Why, why miners have to accept it? What, what percentage of miners need to buy in? Uh, kind of what, you know, people may have heard of like a 51% attack, like how that whole kind of minor side of the world works in terms of cons consortium and, and kind of behavior and incentives and so forth. I think that's really important to understanding how these systems work. Yeah, so you're saying like when, the, when a new code is updated, when a code is updated, the miners, so when you push new protocol code, 
the miners are all running that protocol code. So they either need to decide to update it to follow the new rules or continue to follow the old rules. If they continue to follow the old rules and some continue to follow the old rules and some continue to follow the new rules, then you have a fork. And you want to reduce the number of, kind of those kind of contentious forks as much as possible because otherwise we don't have a canonical truth of what the, what the truth is in the system. You just have a bunch of forks. And what off-chain governance does is it kind of like, um, People push the code and then miners kind of have, they say they have no choice, like you said. But with on-chain governance, they're saying now developers can push the code and um, people who have the most coin holdings can determine whether they want, like, the total vote in the system to know which side to take. And so it kind of automatically decides what fork to take versus people making decisions and them being, there being a lot of different forks. Yeah. It's, I would say, I mean, it, it, that issue is another reason why Bitcoin as a developer platform has kind of stagnated. I mean, Bitcoin, um, most of the miners are in China, and um, there's kind of a big culture gap between uh, the developers and the miners and the users, and there's not this like pure alignment. Um, something interesting about uh, proof of stake, uh, something that I think doesn't get talked about a lot is if you allow like the token holders to actually be the validators of transactions, there, there becomes a more fundamental alignment between, potentially between like users, uh, developers, and kind of the miners. Um, and when proof of stake happens, if you hold Ether, uh, you know, anyone in this room without expensive hardware or anything like that could just download a client and become a miner in the system. So I think that um, kind of aligning the different parties uh, is another potential huge benefit of proof of stake. I mean, I, I want to note that actually a lot of this stuff is already happening in altcoins. So Decred, for instance, has proof of stake. It's a hybrid proof of stake with proof of work. But there's actually crazy uh, yield from it. So if you're staking, you actually get 25% yield. But that's not yield, that's actually dilution. And then they actually have on-chain governance. And so, you know, a lot of these things are actually happening in these grand experiments on real chains that actually have hundreds of millions of dollars worth of market cap already. Preeti, you touched on an important topic, which is forking. And we've seen a few pretty uh, well-publicized, you know, meaningful in terms of market cap impact forks in both Bitcoin and Ethereum uh, in the last 12 or 18 months. And it actually created a lot of, a lot of new market cap value, frankly. Uh, but would you explain kind of how a fork works and, and what, what it, what, how it's different uh, or how it's, it's something that can happen in a blockchain-based world that can't happen in a traditional software world, the analogy of like you can't fork Facebook or, or it wouldn't, wouldn't have the same implications? Yeah. So I guess I'll use Bitcoin as an example. So again, like we have this canonical database that we're saying this is a canonical state of the world and these are all the transactions and everyone believes in this single truth. And when new, new blocks get mined, meaning new transactions get added to that ledger, miners compete to validate those transactions. And they can publish their blocks, and they, they can, there's obviously going to be multiple miners that publish at the same time. And so you always have these, this chain with blocks being added, but the only time that you know that a block is, is actually valid is after a bunch of miners continue to mine on a single chain. And so you kind of want to see the trajectory of what these miners are doing over time to believe the canonical state of the truth. When you have a fork, you start to have like two chains that kind of have people are mining on both almost equally, 
or you know, even if it's not equally, it's, it's enough to keep the other chain going. And then now you have two states of the truth. And so some, you have to, as a user, you have to decide, do you want to believe in that or do you want to believe in this? And that's kind of what creates the contention in the, in the ecosystem because then you have things like Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin Gold, all these different versions of Bitcoin. Um, and you as a user are kind of fragmented and, and deciding which one you want to believe in. And, and to make the Facebook analogy, it, it would be like if Facebook 2 existed and all of your social graph connections and your photos existed in both places. Yeah. You, you had the true option of participating in both. It's not like a, a blank network. It's an equal state of truth from, from day one of the fork going forward in different directions, right? Yeah, it's, it's basically. It's a very kind of novel, novel concept. It's like, um, yeah, go ahead. So I want to kind of shift gears a little bit toward the scaling challenge. You know, we, we touched briefly on the idea of energy usage, and that's it's somewhat related. But uh, one of the kind of near-term roadblocks a lot of these networks will have to, to have to overcome is how do we scale to kind of global usage? A Visa network has hundreds of thousands of transactions a second, right? The Ethereum network is 15-ish transactions a second. Bitcoin seven transactions a second. So not even orders of magnitude near the same. So for you know, if, if we stay in the financial services universe for, for any of these blockchains to kind of have global impact in that world, the transaction velocity and efficiency and cost have to scale dramatically. So why are we, why is the ecosystem facing scaling challenge? Why is it so hard to achieve scale in this type of a architecture? And what, what are we seeing as exciting uh, solutions or potential solutions in that regard? So any blockchain, there, there's, uh, Vitalik coined the, the, tri, the scalability trilemma which is uh, that there's this trade-off in any blockchain between three things, um, scalability, security, and decentralization. And for a, a blockchain can really only have two of those three things um, at, at any one given time. And so Bitcoin, for example, uh, it has decentralization uh, to some degree, and it has security, but it doesn't have scalability. And the reason is because uh, this idea, when you have a distributed set of nodes that's validating the truth, um, the, the bottleneck is um, every node has to kind of process the transaction. Um, and so Bitcoin, for example, can only do three transactions per second. Um, and uh, there's, a, you know, there's other systems, uh, something like EOS, which does delegated proof of stake, which um, it sacrifices decentralization. You say, rather than having thousands of nodes, you have a couple nodes that are validating the transactions. So you sacrifice scalability, um, but you... Uh, but you get, sorry, you get scalability, but you, you, you sacrifice on decentralization. So there's this trade-off uh, that any blockchain faces, and uh, the good news is there's a lot of uh, kind of projects building on top of existing blockchains that are working on, you know, what, what are known as layer two solutions. So on Ethereum, for example, there's something called Raiden, which is kind of a payment channel that f facilitates um, you know, smaller transactions at a, a, a high scale, um, they don't get settled on the main chain. Um, they get settled by what's called, uh, you know, a, a rate and hub. Um, but after, when there's a, a long time elapses and a lot of them happen, then they eventually settle on the kind of main chain. And so like Raiden and Plasma are two interesting projects, you know, working on this type of concept on top of Ethereum, and there's many others. Yeah, I'd love Preeti for you to unpack that, because it's, it's very kind of technically dense, but it's actually really important in terms of, can these things work long term? Yeah. Does Bitcoin as a platform hold value even if layer two kind of solutions emerge on top of it? Um, yeah, I think the reality is, 
we can't expect to put everything on the blockchain. If we're going to scale this, like, we need a layer two. And the blockchain, again, it's a canonical truth, so you want just what you need to determine the truth. Those are hashes, those are um, signatures, stuff like that to actually verify the truth. But where you store that truth or where that tr transactions happen can happen in another layer. And you can think of the blockchain as almost like a settlement layer. And that's what these layer two technologies are basically doing. Things like Lightning Network, which is a layer two technology for Bitcoin. And what happens is two people can transact off the chain a million times if they want to, but then they finally settle on the blockchain when they're done transacting with each other. So imagine like micropayments, you don't settle all those on the blockchain, but you only settle it on the block, um, off the blockchain, but you settle it on the blockchain. So like these, once a day maybe, or once an hour, or some frequency kind of predetermined. Yeah, exactly. And I think th this is fundamental. This ha it has to happen for the blockchain to scale. Otherwise, we're going to, we have to, otherwise, either it's that or we limit the blockchain use cases to very kind of, um, things that only need, that need like very low scalability. And I don't think that's what we want in the future. Uh, so another kind of example of this is the Lightning uh, protocol on top of Ethereum, right? And so Lightning is, is just going into kind of early usage, kind of beta usage, you might say. Um, anyone want to tackle kind of what, the block, what, what Lightning is, what it brings to Ethereum, and kind of what the reaction has been in the ecosystem to its emergence? So Lightning is uh, Bitcoin. Uh, I, yeah. <laughs> so Lightning is what is called a payment cha channel network or layer two technology. And again, so layer two is you have another layer and that's where you, have a, you, you open a channel and anyone in that channel can transact with one another. But none of that is being recorded on the blockchain. It's being recorded separately. And then when the payment needs to be settled, it settles on the blockchain. That's the, that's the essence of Lightning. And it's seeing, re I mean, it's been around for, what, like four or five years now. The paper was released about four years ago. Um, they've made a lot of progress. And all of a sudden, over the last few months, you're seeing a lot of developers start to actually use these nodes and, and try, try out Lightning. So it's pretty exciting what's happening there. Yeah. Uh, we only have a few minutes or a moment left. But I want to touch on one kind of core idea and, and kind of each of you maybe give a prediction or kind of a... Uh, a hope for the ecosystem. Uh, it feels like we kind of started out talking about uh, we're still in the infrastructure phase. There's still a lot of things that are missing or need to be built to get to the kind of mass market application phase. What are maybe one or two things you each think are the kind of most critical missing building blocks or the things you think we're going to see in the next kind of near-term phase that are going to be the most transformative in terms of what can be built and what the end applications of, of these technologies can be you know, for, for end users and consumers? So I'm very excited about this, this idea of a decentralized stable coin. So a cryptocurrency that has the volatility characteristics similar to that of like a US dollar combined with the decentralization of something like Bitcoin or Ethereum, right? Um, Bitcoin and Ethereum and most cryptocurrencies have a fixed supply of coins. So Bitcoin, uh, the money supply is, you know, there's 21 million Bitcoin that will ever exist and that will happen by the year 2140 and the rate at which Bitcoin is printed decreases by half uh, every four years, right? And so as a result, you know, people, hope that Bitcoin becomes kind of a medium of exchange. But the reality is that the fixed supply uh, may uh, make the volatility such that it's actually never a good uh, medium of exchange. And so there's a number of projects um, like Maker and Basecoin and others that are designing a cryptocurrency to be price stable first. And there's different uh, ways that you can do that through kind of uh, a model similar to open market operations with the Fed, also a, uh, like a collateralized debt system. There's kind of different approaches to this. But if uh, we're using uh, you know, cryptocurrencies for kind of end user applications, medium of exchange uh, in five years, I think it's likely that we'll be using 
um, these decentralized stable coins, rather, and it's likely that Bitcoin and Ether and others will mostly be used kind of for investment purposes. Yeah, I mean, to piggyback on that, I mean, you, at the end you mentioned, hey, this is how we're going to uh, be the medium of exchange. And so I think that <clears throat> right now we're clearly in the infrastructure phase, but we need to look at these apps like exchanges, like eBay, like Airbnb, uh, you know, things like Origin or District Zero X, uh, or even at the exchange, decentralized exchange level, Zero X, right? These are all things that are about people exchanging goods and services, uh, you know, all in a decentralized fashion. That's clearly where it could be better, cheaper, faster. And so working backwards from there, we're going to figure out what the infrastructure is going to be. And that's my opinionated view and where, the, where it's going to go. Um, uh, I can say what I'm most excited about in terms of seeing the progress in. One is privacy on the blockchain. I think we're making significant progress there, but we are a long way from getting there. Zcash is an interesting project. I think in, in reality, if we're going to use a blockchain for more important stuff, we definitely need to figure out privacy and how to do that. Um, another thing that I'm working on is like identity. How do you figure out who these humans are and how do you involve them in these protocols? Because if we can't figure out ho who you are, then we can't involve you in the protocol, then what's the point of the blockchain, right? Um, and so those are two very, very interesting thing that, things that I'm focused on. Great. Well, we're all out of time. So thank you guys all for joining us Thanks. and uh, educating us all today. Thanks, guys. <laughs>